Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Neil Pitchell. I'm one of the pastors here and I have the privilege of speaking this morning. Um, a little confession to make. When we first uh, established the plan for Romans, uh, I was told right at the very beginning that I would be preaching on Romans 11 because I'm Jewish and it's about Israel and I'm typecast. <laughs> well, the one Sunday that I'm going to be out of town this summer is the Sunday that Romans 11 was scheduled. So, we're going to go out of order today, and we're going to do Romans 11 today and the rest of Romans 10 next week. That shows you how typecast that I am. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, please. This chapter is about what is happening to Israel in Paul's day and what will happen to them in the future. In Paul's day, Israel had rejected Jesus, and they were persecuting the church. Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah would seem to mean that God had given up on Israel and that his promises to them had failed. But if all the Jews were lost, what about all those promises to Israel? Did God simply transfer them over to the Christians and let the Jews slip out of the picture? But if that's true, if God had rejected his people Israel, then God's word indeed had failed and God is not trustworthy because throughout the Old Testament there are specific references to the fact that God will not cast his people away. I want to show you three of them. I'm not going to have you turn there because we've got a lot to do today, uh, but I'm going to put them up on the screen and I'm going to show you three specific Old Testament verses. First one is from 1 Samuel chapter 12. I'm just going to read verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Psalm 94, verse 14. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Jeremiah 31, 35 and 36. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for the light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. This question of Israel's future is absolutely critical to us because if God turned his back on his promises to Abraham and to Israel, how can we trust the promises that he's made to us in the New Testament today? Promises like, I will be with you forever, even to the end of the age. Promise like that our prayers will be answered when we ask in faith according to his will. Promises like... He will come back to take us to be with him forever. These are important questions, and I believe in chapter 11, Paul gives us a very clear answer. Now, here's a problem. Within evangelical Christianity, there's a difference of opinion regarding Israel. There's the covenant view that believes the church has replaced Israel that all of the promises made by God in the Old Testament to Israel now apply to the church. The church is spiritual Israel. Then there's the view that Israel has entered into a period of rejection by God because of their disobedience, but there will always be a faithful remnant, and one day God will restore Israel to his favor. Now, when there's a difference of opinion like that, there's really smart guys that end up on both sides 
of an issue, we need to make sure we proceed cautiously and, and with humility. But I also feel like you have to take a position, and I believe that Paul takes a very clear position. That he, in, in chapter 11, gives us two very specific answers. One is that Israel and the church are two different things. The church has not swallowed up Israel. And second, there will be a time when Israel will be restored to God's favor. Now, he's not talking about the state of Israel that was reformed in 1947. What he's saying is that the, the Jews themselves, no matter where they are, Jews from all over the world, the ethnic people, do have a future in God's plan. So just a review. Chapters 9 through 11 ask the question, can God be trusted? Has he turned his back on his word to Abraham and to the Israelites? And if he did, how can we possibly trust him today? Well, to answer that, Paul makes the case that the present rejection of Israel is not total and it's not final. Therefore, the God that was, is, and always will be faithful to Israel is the same God who was, is, and always will be faithful to us. In fact, Paul not only rejects the conclusion that God has given up on Israel, but he makes the claim that God will use Israel's failure to receive Christ as their Messiah for good for both Jew and Gentile. So in, in verse 1, Paul begins to make his argument, and he starts by using himself as an example. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. If God had completely rejected the Jews, then Paul is saying he himself would not have been called by God to faith in Christ. He asks the question, has God tossed away ethnic Israel? And he answers in the strongest possible negative, no way. And the first proof of that fact is that Paul himself is Jewish. Even though Paul was a follower of Christ, he still views himself as Jewish, as a member of the nation of Israel. He says, hey, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the original tribes, 12 tribes of Israel. So he says, even though the vast majority of the Jewish people rejected Jesus, which could lead someone to conclude that God has given up on Israel, Paul concludes that because he himself as a Jew, is also a Christian, a follower of Christ, then God is not finished with Israel yet. Even though that Paul is outnumbered, the fact that he was a Jewish Christian was proof enough to him that God had not cast aside the nation of Israel. Just one Jewish believer was enough to convince Paul. What that tells us, I believe, is that in God's economy, it's not always about big numbers. We need to make sure that we look for God in the small things. Big things, dramatic things, have a tendency to keep us from seeing the wonderful small things that God is doing. In this case, the big thing was that the vast majority, most of the Jews didn't believe in Jesus. And they, and they still don't. And it would be tempting for Paul to let that big thing overshadow the small thing. Namely, that he himself was a Jewish believer. But he doesn't let that happen because he knows that God works in small things. 
The prophet Zechariah says, don't despise small things because God works with those small things. We today expect the church, the big thing, to make a difference in the kingdom. And of course it should. But we let that overshadow the fact that each one of us has a responsibility. That each one of us can make a difference for the kingdom. One person, one small thing, if we'll commit to be a discipler, if we'll commit to be a mentor, if we'll commit to be an encourager. Can you imagine what would happen with the kingdom of God? Don't despise small things. Don't let the big thing overwhelm all that God can do in our lives. Well, now let's look at verse, the beginning of verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now that word foreknew or foreknow in Scripture uh, means essentially to enter into an intimate relationship beforehand. What this means is that God chose Israel as a nation, as a people, from before the beginning of time. Not because of their merit, way before Abraham ever came into the picture, God knew them intimately before he ever created them, which means he knew everything about them. And that means that their failure didn't take God by surprise. When Jesus came and the nation of Israel rejected him, it didn't take God by surprise. God didn't say, oh, no, I got to go to plan B now. No. In fact, when you really think about it, God uses people more in their failures than in their faithfulness. And that was true of most of the heroes of Scripture. Guys like Peter, Paul, David, Jacob. God uses our failures. God does his best work. When you think about your own life and think about the failures and the messes that we've gotten ourselves into, how often have we seen the grace of God move in the midst of that failure, in the midst of that sin, in the midst of that mess? And because Romans 8.28 is true, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That means not only can God use our failures for our good, but he can use the failures of those who touch our lives. Have you been mistreated by someone that you really care about? God will use that for good. Have you been lied to, cheated, taken advantage of? God can use all that stuff for good. See, we have to look at sin and disappointment and failure in the context of the sovereignty of God and his plan for us. If we think that God can only use us in the midst of our successes, then we've completely misunderstood the grace of God. God works in our failures. Sovereign grace means that our failures leads to God's grace all we need to do is confess our sin and repent and turn back to him. God is a God of second chances, third chances. Again, look at Peter. Look at Jonah, David, Paul himself. Our failures cannot hinder or frustrate the work that God has purposed and promised to do in our lives. And nor did Israel's failure to accept Jesus frustrate God's plans and God's future for the Jewish people. But we have to make sure we understand that just like Israel, our failures are always costly to us personally. When we sin, 
which is a failure to meet God's standard, we suffer. Good news is that those who trust in Christ, because Romans 8.1 is true, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We do not suffer the eternal wrath of God, but we do suffer the consequences when we sin. It's never worth it to sin. But when we do sin, we do not frustrate God's purposes and plans and promises for us. Now, continuing on in, in verse 2, he says, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. They seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So Paul's point here is that, that a remnant exists is further proof that God has not abandoned his plan for Israel. It's not a huge number, but it's more than you think. This leads us to a couple of really important principles. I think first is that God works through a faithful minority. He doesn't need big numbers to accomplish his purposes. So maybe, maybe like Elijah, you feel alone or discouraged in your workplace or in your neighborhood or in your school. You, you think that, that, that you're all alone. But the good news is you're not alone. There's someone in the next cube or, or the next classroom or, or down the street that God is using that you haven't met yet. See, God is faithful to preserve a remnant, small minority, but they're out there. You are not alone. Second thing that we see for, from this is that we can't see all that God is doing. God's work is often hidden from us. God does his work behind the scenes. In the ordinary circumstances of life that sometimes we even think are coincidences. There was a time in the life of the prophet Elijah where he thought he was all alone. God, I'm all alone. It's just me. Look at me. God said, oh, come on, Elijah. There's 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Men I have selected for myself, they're out there. You're not alone. See, Elijah forgot that we as human beings have limited knowledge. We don't see very clearly. We don't understand all the issues. There's nothing that we know everything about. Therefore, our knowledge of what God is doing is always limited. When you have a relationship with the king of the universe, things are never as bad as they seem. God is working and moving. As bad as things are getting for Christians in our culture, in our post-Christian society, they are never as bad as they look because God is trustworthy and he promises that not even the gates of hell will prevail against his church. God is working through a faithful minority and God is doing things that we can't even see. Now let's look at the rest of the argument, verse 6. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave him a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. 
So Paul says that what the Israel was trying to obtain, which is God's favor, they didn't find. And the reason they didn't find it was because they were trying to gain God's favor by the law. Now, we know from studying Romans that you can never please God by the law because we can never keep the whole thing. So Paul says that the nation of Israel as a whole was trying to find God's favor, find righteousness through the law. And they, came, they failed. They did not obtain it. But there was a remnant that did. How? By grace. By God's unmerited favor. By God choosing them to be his. He plucked them out of the rest who were trying to find God's favor by law. God's choice of those Jews who are part of the remnant is established solely on the basis of grace. The biblical principle is always true. It always has been. Justification, being made right with God, is solely and completely a work of grace. That grace and works are mutually exclusive. So, so Paul has spent these first uh, 10 verses uh, making the case that Israel's rejection is not total. He holds himself up as an example. He talks about Elijah as a remnant. And now the next question comes up is, well, will there always be just a small amount? Will there always just be a few Jews, just a small remnant? And once again, Paul answers in the strongest negative, no way. Look at verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles in as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So in order for Paul to answer the question, is this rejection of Israel, of the Jewish people, final? Is it always going to be a small number? He lets us in on God's plan of salvation that goes all the way back to eternity past. Look at verse 11 again. Because of Israel's sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. In his divine wisdom, God chose to use the rejection of Christ by the Jews as a means of reaching the Gentiles. The tragedy of Israel's unbelief is therefore used by God to bring about Gentile salvation, which eventually will lead to the restoration of Israel. In verse 25, when Paul's talking about this whole story, he says it's, it's a mystery. Now, in Scripture, a mystery is something that was once concealed and is now revealed. It's something that we could never understand unless God revealed it to us in his word. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, look, you never could have figured this out. Only God could have created such a plan. And here it is. Listen, God's goal of unity for his people, Jew and Gentile, is reflected in the reciprocity of his saving plan. What happens to the Jews impacts the Gentiles. What happens to the Gentiles impacts the Jews. And he says that God has brought salvation to the Gentiles in order 
to make the Jews jealous. Not that the jealousy is a means to an end, but maybe, just maybe, if the Jews see the Gentiles and their, their love for Christ, they might become jealous of what they have, turn back to God, and receive the grace that God offers independent of the law. So what does that mean for us? Something very important, I think. It means that Christians ought to be such light, so alive in our Christianity, so full of joy and love towards God and towards each other, that every Jew we come in contact with should say to themselves, what do they have that How is it possible that even in the midst of devastating circumstances, they have joy in their heart and love for God and other people? Now, we have to admit that uh, throughout the ages, the churches have done a pretty shameful job at making the Jews jealous. But Paul says that that is God's intention. That Gentiles should be so full of life, so full of joy, that when a Jew comes in contact with them, they see Jesus. And that's what happened to me. I grew up in a, in a Jewish family north of Boston, uh, forced to go to Hebrew school from grade 4 through 7, uh, five days a week, uh, right after school, and bar mitzvah lessons, and then I was bar mitzvah at 13. By the time I was 13 years old and finished with my bar mitzvah, I was so sick and tired of trying to survive under the burden of that law, under those rules and regulations, all all of the the, the Sabbath rules, and you can do this and you can't do that. I said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not going back to that temple. I am done with my Judaism. I've had it. And I I really was done uh, for the next four to five years until I was a, a freshman at the University of Massachusetts uh, at Amherst, Mass. I was sitting in my dorm room one night, and these two guys walked into my room. Never seen them before. They were big guys. And um, they said, uh, hey, do you believe in God? I said, uh, yeah, you know, like, I, I do. Uh, and they said, uh, do you believe you can have a personal relationship with God? And I said, oh, no, 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 no. A personal relationship with God. I can't keep all those rules. I, I can't even stand in God's presence. I gotta wear a yarmulke when I'm in His presence because He's so holy and I'm me. I can't even write the word God. G space D. Personal relationship. No, no way. They said, "Well, we'd like to tell you how you can." I didn't really feel like studying anymore, so I said, uh, "Okay." Well, right at that moment, my roommate walked in. Um, he was. Uh, from, from Connecticut, and he was kind of a, a marginal, call himself a nominal Christian, and he didn't feel like studying either, so he thought he would listen as well. So the guys pulled out this little orange pamphlet. Uh, it's called The Four Spiritual Laws, and he started going through it. I didn't get it. It went right over my head. I didn't understand the thing they were saying. My roommate got it. He was overwhelmed and asked what he needed to do, and he, he actually prayed to receive Jesus as his Savior completely freaked me out. Um, so I did the only natural thing I could do. I, I moved out. Uh, <laughs> I moved in with uh, another friend who I'd met there, and um, about halfway through the semester, he got saved. Uh, same guys. Uh, 
I said, okay. So I thought I'd be safe, and I moved into a fraternity. <laughs> and, and that worked. Um, but not really. Here's what happened, okay? Those guys, my, my two ex-roommates, those two guys uh, who are from the Navigators and, uh, and several other of their friends continued to uh, be involved in my life. I had never met nicer guys. I had never met people with more joy. I had never met more forgiving people because they would invite me to come to different things. I'd say, sure, I'll be there. I wouldn't show up. And, and, and they would forgive me and call me again. And, and invite me. I mean, if I needed a ride somewhere, they took me. It was, I'd never seen anything like it. So it got to the place where I thought, I got to check this out. So I said, okay, let me, let me see the New Testament that you have. And I said, okay, you got to start in the Gospel of John. I said, okay. I started to read it. And that created a further problem for me because it was really good. Um, I looked at it and I thought, wow, th th this, Jesus has a lot of really good things to say. But I had this tremendous struggle of my family and all of the Jews throughout history. And, and here was this, these guys who I'd never met anybody like them in my life. And here was this, this Bible that really made sense. I, I, I had this tremendous tugging and pulling going on in my life. I, um, so I, I came to a conclusion. I said, instead of a big three, which all Jews have a big three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I was going to have a big four. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus. It was the perfect compromise. I, could, I felt like I could hold on to my Judaism and, and hang on to the history, even though I hated it, and still have Jesus in my life. Well, that didn't work. Uh, it was so confusing. Um, I, I kept feeling that, that there was something I was missing. And then four years later, I mean, four years of this going back and forth, and these guys stayed in my life, continued to care for me, and one of them gave me a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And in the very first chapter, Lewis says, I want to talk to you who believe that Jesus is a great prophet, a great man. I thought, oh, that's me. He's, my, you know, number four. Um, and um, he said, you have a problem. He said, Jesus says he's God. And I knew that because I had read that. And he said, anyone who says he's God, there's only three choices. He is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord in who he says he is. Now, I had seen the impact that Jesus had made in the lives of these men. I had never met anyone like them. There was no way that they had committed their lives to a liar or a lunatic. So at that point, I prayed. I said, God, would you please open my eyes to see this truth and God saved me because of his grace and the kindness and the joy of those men. I'm standing here before you speaking to you today. God be the glory for his amazing grace and those amazing men. So back to the chapter. In verse 16. Paul says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. What Paul is saying here is he's just giving another illustration to show that God is not finished with Israel. He's referring back to the festival of first fruits that was first given by God to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 23. He said, what you do in this festival of first fruits is you take that first lump of grain and you offer it to me. And that symbolizes the fact that all of the harvest is mine. 
that all of the grain is mine. So he's, what he's doing here is showing because God demonstrated his love for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because God brought them into his family by grace, that means that all of the remnant of those who believe are also part of it, that God is not going to reject his people overall because they're all his. He's, and he's using that picture of that, the first fruits. Because he loved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he loves his descendants, and he will carry through on his promises to them. Then Paul makes another argument using another illustration, this time of an olive tree. Look at verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so don't become proud, but fear. For God, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So what uh, he's using here is the picture of an olive tree, which is a, a common picture uh, used in Scripture for Israel. And he says, imagine you have this cultivated olive tree that's been well taken care of, but there are some bad branches, so they get whacked off, Pew, bang, gone. And what God does is he says, okay, I'm going to take these wild branches that are unproductive and I'm going to graft them in. And because the root and the tree is good, it's going to feed and nourish those branches that have been brought in and they are going to produce fruit. And those branches are the Gentiles. The Gentiles have been brought in to God's family. The Gentiles have been made a part of God's family. And the root of that tree is God's promise to Abraham that he will bless all nations through his descendant, that is Jesus Christ. The Gentiles have been grafted into the people of God, ethnic Israel, by the grace of God through the proclamation of the gospel. So Gentiles, you need to stand firmly attached to the root, to the tree, if you're going to continue to grow. And that means that you remember that we're part of God's people by grace. It's nothing to do with your worthiness. It's nothing to do with your background. It has everything to do with the fact that God has chosen to graft you in to the whole family of God. And then in verse, verse 22 and 23, he says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So what he's saying here is there are these two opposite characteristics of God. It's, it's another one of those both ands of Scripture, seeming paradoxes, that God is both kind and severe. His severity is his hatred towards sin. His kindness is his grace towards sinners. And if we don't recognize both aspects of God, we're in danger of not understanding God's plan. See, if all we see is God's severity, then we'll think, oh, that's not fair. What do you mean God chose some and not the others? Because all we're looking at is, is his hatred of sin and his wrath and giving people what they deserve. Now, if we go to the other side and all we do is look at God's kindness, oh, he saved me, you know, I'm, we're just fine, I don't have to do anything, then we miss the idea of our responsibility to bear fruit and to live lives 
that are dedicated to God. See, for me, all I saw was the severity of God. All I felt was the, the pressure of that law until these guys showed me God's kindness. Until God opened it, my eyes to see him for who he really was. So the, his severity, rather than turning me away from him, caused me to run to him and his grace. That's why we have to see the whole picture of God's plan. That's why we have to understand that God has a future for his people. Now, in verse 23, he says, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into the olive tree? So what he's saying is, because the Jews were hardened and turned away from God, that brought incredible blessing to the Gentiles. The gift of salvation was poured out on all nations because of their disobedience. Can you imagine what God's going to do when he restores them, when they're grafted back in? It's going to mean the fulfillment, the fulfillment of God's plan of Jew and Gentile together as his people, worshiping him, praising him, giving him glory. Then in verse 25, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regard election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So here he's saying all Israel will be saved. Now that can be in a, a confusing um, statement. But you have to understand in Scripture, the word all doesn't always mean everyone. For example, my Boston Red Sox won the World Series last year. It was an, yeah, come on, man. You're not a Yankee fan, are you? Oh! Usher? Um, so the, the article in the Boston Globe said that all of Boston showed up at the parade. Well, we know that every single person in Boston didn't go to the parade, but the number was so huge, it appeared that all of Boston was at the parade. So what Paul is saying here is that the salvation of Jews will be so widespread, there'll be, there'll be so many Jewish people that come and follow Christ that you could say, all Israel will be saved. But, but he has made the point over and over again, of course, that, that God's promises are eternal, but it, participation in them always requires individual faith. And then he, he goes on to, to talk about why this mystery is being shared. It's so that we who are followers of Christ will be humble. It's so easy for us to begin to think that, well, God has poured out his blessing on us and we're done. We're fine. We don't have to do anything. Or to think that because now the Gentiles have been grafted in, that the church is just for Gentiles only. But Paul is saying, no, you need to be humble because you have not replaced the Jews. You've been brought in 
temporarily until the fullness, until the last numbers of Gentiles come in, and then God is going to restore his people Israel. And he says the way, the way that's going to happen is that the deliverer will come from Zion, and that deliverer is Jesus. God will remove the hardening and open the eyes of vast numbers of Jews to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the Messiah, and that they will be saved by believing that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for their sins. There is a future for Israel and God's plan. There is a future for the Jews, but only those who come to faith in Jesus Christ will share in it. Right now, a few believe, but in the end, there will be huge numbers. Israel still has a future in God's plan. And here in verse 29, he tells us why. Not because they're Jews, here's why. Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You see, God has not changed his mind about Israel. He knew all along that they would reject him. And you know what that means? He hasn't changed his mind about us either. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny his own nature. Just keep your finger there in uh, Romans 11 and flip over to, to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God's faithfulness to Israel throughout the ages is a picture of his faithfulness to us as his people today. Then in verse 30 and 31, he says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Again, all he's saying here is that the same mercy that the Gentiles received when they were disobedient is going to be given at some future point to Israel. That the hardening and the subsequent salvation of Israel is absolutely a mystery. When you think about it, the, the Jews had everything going for them. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the priests. They had the kings. They had the sacrificial system. They had the tabernacle. They had the temple. And yet it wasn't enough because they tried to receive God's favor through works. And it is true today as it was then and it always will be that the Jewish people will be saved only by coming to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that same thing is true for any religious system on the planet. Right now, there are people all over the world seeking God through religious systems. There is probably greater spirituality today than there has been in a long, long time. There's probably more people seeking some type of spiritual enlightenment. But unless people come to Jesus Christ in their search for God, their search is futile. Because there's only one solution to human failure, and that is the gospel. Whether you're a Jew, a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Muslim, New Age, doesn't really matter. 
all people can be saved through the marvelous truth of the gospel that God did it all and all we have to do is believe and accept the free gift that he offers. You see, Paul is saying that, that we should be the most humble people on the planet. That we should be the most thankful people on the planet. And, and he finishes this chapter with, with such an expression of praise and worship. He's so overwhelmed by God's incredible plan. He's so thrilled that God has not given up on Israel. He is so excited about God's plan for the Gentiles that he finishes this chapter in one of the great passages of praise in all of Scripture. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, we can't understand everything about God. His ways are unsearchable, inscrutable. I mean, who would want to worship a God that you can figure everything out anyway? But he says, but he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. And his plan for the Jews proves that. And he says, here's how you should live in light of that fact. You should live from him. That means from his word, that he gives us the blueprint for life right here. And then he says, through him, by the power of the Spirit living within us, we can apply this word. And then he says, to him, everything we do, everything we say is to be for his glory. If you've ever come to a place in your life where you felt that, that God doesn't love you, that God has given up on you, that God is not trustworthy, I, I have two words for you. The Jews. The Jews. The Egyptians tried it. So did the Amalekites, Canaanites, and all the other rites in the promised land. Then it was the, the Philistines. Then it was the Assyrians. Then it was the Babylonians. Then it was the Persians. Then it was the Greeks. Then it was the Romans. Then it was the Spanish Inquisition. Then it was the Holocaust. Then it was the Six-Day War. Then it was the Yom Kippur War. Then it was every Arab nation on the planet surrounding them. And it's Hamas today who has vowed to kill every Jew on the planet. And you know what? It will never happen. Because God is faithful. God is trustworthy. And you can trust him. No matter what it looks like. No matter what's happened. He is trustworthy. And he is due our worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great story of Israel, of your plan of salvation. And thank you for allowing us to have a part in that, that we can live as salt and light, that we can be examples, that we can demonstrate what it means to have a relationship with the creator of the universe so that we can make anyone who doesn't know you jealous, that they might want what we have. Lord, let us live in such a way that you receive glory and that those who come in contact with us see you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.